morning's uh, scripture reading will be in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 to 9. If you want to turn there, if you're using the Bible in the pew, you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew. If you're not familiar with the Bible, uh, Hebrews chapter 2 is on page 1001 of that Bible that's in front of you. When we say chapter, we're referring to the larger numbers and the verse numbers are the smaller. And so we'll read verses 5 through 9 of chapter 2 and then we'll pray together. As I said, it's our privilege to have Dr. Steve Wellam from Southern Seminary. He's been there uh, 20 years uh, teaching and he is professor of Christian theology. He's been married over 33 years to Karen and they have five children. I'm going by memory, three boys and two girls uh, from age 29 down to 19. And uh, so we are thankful for his ministry in training the next generation of pastors and we are thankful for his ministry among us today. And uh, so let's read the text, uh, part of the text from which Dr. Willem will preach and then we'll pray together. Hebrews chapter two, verses five to nine. This is what the spirit says. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are thankful for your written word. We are thankful that you speak to us. We are thankful that through men carried along by the Spirit, we have these words in front of us. We thank you for the truth that they speak. And we ask now that as our brother comes, to explain them, to preach them, to exhort us, to teach us, to encourage us, to exalt Jesus. We pray that truly that's how our hearts will respond, that we will be truly exhorted and encouraged, that our hearts would exalt Jesus as a result of studying this text together. We pray that you will speak through him, that you will speak to us, that we will respond in faith, in love, in obedience. We ask it all in the name of our precious Lord Jesus who tasted death for everyone. Amen.
Well, it's a great privilege to be with you this morning and uh, to look at God's Word together as was just read from Hebrews chapter 2. I'll ask you to turn there. Um, 5 through 9 uh, was read and we'll be looking at, we'll take the Herculean task of looking at uh, 5 through 18. There's so much here, but we want to gain something of the big picture of what is happening. It's one section in Hebrews, and sometimes it's very important to take it as one section against the whole context setting of the instruction that is before us. And ultimately, it's giving to us, right, the glory and wonder of the Lord Jesus. Now, in your bulletin and what you were given, uh, the sermon title is put there. Right? And uh, it says that we'll be looking at Christmas in March. Now, I'm very fully aware that uh, Christmas is in December, right? But this is the month of March. Uh, you may have thought that uh, my dear wife, um, she, you know, there's not much on TV these days, and uh, she loves to watch Hallmark. So when you uh, watch Hallmark, it's almost as if Christmas is every month, right? It never ends, right? Christmas starts in June all the way up building. So you may think that this title, Christmas in March, uh, actually reflects that I'm a secret lover of Hallmark or something. Well, it's not. I can guarantee that. Oh, I do watch it with her and enjoy it. But um, you know, this really was uh, the title that came to mind as we as I thought of this particular text that's before us. Right? In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 18, we have really a, a summary, right? You, you find certain texts in Scripture that give us certain instruction in very detailed ways. And this particular text really is giving us instruction that's answering the question of Christmas. Right? And that's why we're calling it Christmas in March. And what's the question of Christmas is, why the Incarnation? <laughs> why did God the Son take on our humanity? Why did God the Son become human? Right? That's the most profound question that we can ask, right? Scripture teaches, and we saw in the Sunday School Hour from John 1, that the Word who was from all eternity, the eternal Son, became flesh. But why? Why did that happen? Why did the eternal Son leave, in some sense, His glory and take upon our humanity, live among the likes of us, obey for us, die for us? Right? Why did He do that? And in this passage we have, in some sense, uh, an answer to that question. Right? This question has been raised through the history of the church. Uh, in the early church, Athanasius, on his famous book on the Incarnation, asked this very question. In the Middle Ages, in the 1100s, there is a well-known book by St. Anselm, Anselm of Canterbury, who wrote the book, Why Did God Become Man? Well, Hebrews 2 answers that for us, and that's what we want to look at this morning. Now, as we turn to chapter 2, verses 5 through 18, the rest of the chapter, it's important to just briefly set its context. Right? 
reason we do so that in verse 5 we are picking up right an argument that the author has already started in chapter 1 we're sort of sort of dipping into what he's already been expounding for an entire chapter You'll probably know that the author of Hebrews is anonymous. There's all kinds of debates as to who it actually is. We're not sure. It's given to us by the Spirit of God through some individual, right? We're not sure exactly, but we have some sense that he was writing uh, in the first century, probably before uh, the fall of Jerusalem. That occurred in 70 AD. So it's probably written in the 60s or so to Jewish Christians, and we think it's Jewish Christians because of the content of the book. The book over and over is speaking to this church from the Old Testament, warning them, and this book is full of warnings and encouragement, but he warns them not to sort of go back to the Old Testament ways. And that's probably why we think it's Jewish Christians. Uh, many Uh, from Israel, believed in the Messiah, right? But it seems as if, as you read this book, they were in danger of possibly compromising their Christian commitment. Uh, They were facing incredible pressures, right? Pressures, external pressures, persecution. Uh, They probably were facing, in the 60s or so, things like Nero, burning Christians on light posts and so on for their faith. And so the author addresses them He warns them, don't depart from the gospel, don't depart from Jesus. But he also warns them by encouraging them, right? So you have the beautiful balance here of encouragement and warning. He encourages them to press on, to run the races before them. You have all kinds of race imagery that shows up in chapter 12. Run the race that's set before you as you look to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, right? He encourages them by showing them the glory of Christ. And that's the best way to encourage people to continue to run the race, to continue to not lose heart, to also, because he lays out the glory of Christ, that also has an implicit warning, because Christ is so great, if you leave him, you will have nothing outside of him. And there's the warning there of you will have no salvation apart from him. And so this author then, step by step, warns and encourages, encourages and warns this church to face the pressures that they are meeting, to not compromise internally, to run the race with their eyes fixed upon Jesus. Now, the book of Hebrews is famous for its glorious presentation of Christ, right? Often, if you think of the theme of the book of Hebrews, it's certainly the Lord Jesus, It's he is better, right? He is greater. He is superior. And the reason why that's the case is through an entire series of sort of comparisons and contrasts, the author walks through this letter by showing, by comparing him to often Old Testament figures and priests and the law and Moses and Joshua and so on. He compares them to them and says they're nothing compared to Christ who fulfills them and is far greater. We have that with the opening verses of chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to the prophets many times, but the whole prophetic revelation in the Son has now come to pass. And through this series of contrasts and comparisons, 
he then shows the excellencies of Christ to encourage them and to warn them. Well, when we come to verse 5 of chapter 2, he's in his first contrast, right? Comparison and contrast. He begins in two chapters to compare Christ to angels. And we could spend you know, a lot of time thinking of why he does this. Right? Lots of speculation on that. We're not going to really do that. But probably there's some sense in which angels are seen as great beings. Uh, angels were seen as sort of giving of the law. And all of these things are probably reasons why he does this. But for any reason, whatever the reason is, he spends time saying, angels can't save you. <laughs> uh, don't look to angels. Christ is greater. And in verse 4 of chapter 1, through the end of chapter 1, we could say, and he quotes Old Testament text after Old Testament text after Old Testament text, right? That's what the New Testament authors do, right? They go back to the Old Testament. They show that Christ is from the Old Testament and so on. And in chapter 1, he begins to show that Jesus is better than angels in terms of who he is. He has a greater name, and he has a greater kingdom, and he has a greater honor, and he, he's ultimately God himself. He is creator and sustainer. And the opening verses speak of him as the eternal son who has become son, who's become human. But then after warning... The first warning comes in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. He warns them. It's like he's preaching to them. He's expounding scripture. He's laying out the glories of Christ. And then he says, I've got to pause for a moment. I've got to warn you, don't depart from him. Don't leave him. And then he returns in verse 5 to then his argument. And we can see that in verse 5. It's not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking, right? And what he's speaking here is from chapter 1, right? So he's picking up his argument, and he's not just saying the same thing as he said in chapter 1, he's expanding it. So if in chapter 1 he shows that Christ is greater than angels because of who Jesus is as the Son, the eternal Son, in chapter 2, verses 5 and following, he lays out that Christ is greater than angels because of what the Son does. The Son does something that no angel can do. And ultimately what the Son does is the Son becomes human. The Son takes on our humanity and in taking on our humanity, He does something that no angel can do, namely save us. Right? And that's where He is going in this section. And in fact, He lays out here four reasons tied to Christ being greater than angels, why the Son of God had to become man, why the incarnation was necessary, and why it's only by taking on our humanity and then living his life, dying his death, and accomplishing our salvation, he does a work that no angel could ever do, and ultimately just no mere human could ever do. Right? Now the four reasons he gives for why the incarnation, <laughs> why Christmas, why did God the Son become human is the first reason is given in verses 5 to 9. And we could say it this way. The Son of God became human in order to fulfill God's creation purpose, intention for us. Right? God the Son became human to do something that no angel could do 
by taking on our humanity in order to fulfill God's creation purpose or intention for us. The second reason will be given in verses 10 through 13. And these reasons will all be interwoven with one another. Right? We're sort of breaking them up here, but they're all sort of all one piece, right? The second reason why God the Son has become human is not only to fulfill God's intention for us, but to bring us to glory. Right? And he says that in verse 10. He will bring many sons to glory. And then in verses 14 through 16, he will say, God the Son became human and did something that no angel can do by destroying death. That's why he became human. He came to destroy death and the devil. And then in verses 17 to 18, he gives you the fourth reason why God the Son became human and he can do something that no angel can do is that he did so to become our merciful and faithful high priest. Now, all four of these reasons are giving you why Christmas happened and ultimately why Christmas must lead to Easter, right? As we put these together, why the incarnation has to happen and by that incarnation he can do something that no angel could do and then he actually accomplishes that work through his cross and resurrection and so on. Well, let's look at each of these reasons in turn. Right? Why did God the Son become human? In order to fulfill God's creation intention for humanity. Verses 5 through 9. In verse 5 he says, It's not angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we're speaking. That world to come language comes from chapter 1 verse 6. World to come is really an Old Testament concept. Right? As the prophets looked forward to the future age, right? as they walked through the Old Testament, the prophets looked to the future age, they spoke of it as a world to come or the age to come. Right? The age to come, and as the prophets lay out for it, they looked to the future, they looked to God doing something. God doing something to save, to bring judgment, to bring his rule and reign to this world. And this is all spoken of in terms of the dawning of a new creation and a new covenant and the rule of God and the forgiveness of sins. And what the author is doing here is he is saying angels can't bring that world to come. The only person that can bring that world to come is the Son of God who became human. And he justifies that by appealing to an Old Testament text, right? He does this all throughout his letter, right? Passage after passage after passage is expounded. And he's showing what indeed Jesus does, right? When Jesus is on the way to Emmaus, what does he do with his disciples, his downcast disciples? He goes back to the law and the prophets and all of Scripture to show in that Scripture how it pointed forward and anticipated and spoke of his death and resurrection. And really, that's what the author of Hebrews is doing here. Right? So he grounds this statement that angels can't bring the world to come, and of course, it's only Jesus who can do so, by now quoting Psalm 8. But there is a place where someone has testified, he says in verse 6. And now you have a quotation from this famous psalm. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor. You put everything subject under his feet. 
There's the quote. Now that quote is serving to ground that angels can't save you and bring the world to come, only Jesus can. So how is it functioning here, right? It needs a little bit of explanation, right? It's important when you think of how the New Testament authors quote the Old Testament. They never do so randomly, right? They don't, you know, have a, you know, a bunch of pieces of paper and put their hand in and pull out a piece of paper and say, oh, let's pull that text out, right? No, no, they very carefully quote these texts in their place in the Old Testament to make the point. Now, they are assuming, right, they can't quote the whole Old Testament for you, so they're assuming that you know something of context and what this text is referring to to justify how they're using it. And that's what we want to look at just a little bit here. Psalm 8, if you go back to the Old Testament, right, is one of those creation psalms. Psalm 8 begins with David saying, Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Right? It's almost as if David is looking up to the skies. He acknowledges that God is the creator and Lord. He worships him for it, sort of like a Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and so on. And then as he reflects upon the greatness of God as Lord and creator and so on, he then marvels, and this is where our quotation comes in. He marvels that he has made us, <laughs> humans, Adam, right? In some sense, he's going back to creation, to Adam. But it's, it's true of Adam and true of us. He's made us in his image, right? And that's what he's picking up here. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him? We, all of this is now going back. So Psalm 8, as is, is, is David is reflecting on this, is forcing us to look at creation. God is very great, but he has made us, and we must not forget this, right? That he's made humans, male and female, image bears. And what did he make image bears for? He made image bears for to rule over the world, right? To have dominion over all things, to put things under our feet. And of course, that's what the psalm says. You made him a little lower than the angels, humans. You crowned humans, and ultimately goes back to Adam with glory and honor. You, you put everything under Adam's feet and humans' feet, right? He's reflecting upon humans and Adam's role in creation, and the Bible presents humans as great. Right? Now, we're going to be fallen, but it's important to say, and especially today, isn't it? The Bible views human beings as utterly significant. Right? It's only Christians who say this, you know. Right? We can see around us, even in the last months, right? the loss again of, you see in the news and in votes in New York State and Virginia and so on, infanticide, I mean, the, the, the whole destruction of human life. Right? Humans are on a death wish. It's only the Bible, it's only the gospel, it's only grounding things in creation that give humans dignity and significance. And we're living in a day and age where the church is going to have to step up and we're going to have to show the world what it means to be human, right? Uh, how to protect life and guard life and so on. And the, David is reflecting upon our magnificence of creation. I mean, that's important for us. I mean... You may come in here even today thinking you're not that important. <laughs> you're not that significant. Well, the Bible says you're very important, right? You're made in God's image. You were made in Adam to rule and to reign and so on. And that's what Psalm 8 is celebrating. Now, we have to quickly add right, 
that this was, you know, as David reflects upon creation, this was the original intent, right? This was the creation intent. This was God's purpose, right? But we also know from Scripture, and David's very fully aware of this, that something desperately went wrong, right? So we're made in God's image. But there was Genesis 3, after all, right? There was the fall. There was Adam turning from God. Revolution at the heart of the universe. Death being brought into this world. Curse. The rule of, in some sense, Satan himself, right? Pictured in the serpent, right? Enmity between the woman's offspring and the serpent's offspring. And all sin leading to death and destruction. Psalm 8 remembers what we were in creation. But it's not denying the fact that we also are fallen, right? Think of where Psalm 8 is located in the Old Testament, right? It's put in the book of Psalms. David is writing it in his time, but as a psalm, it's collected in the Psalter. And the Psalter as a book is near the very end of the Old Testament. So it's a psalm of David, but it's collected as the Psalter. And David knows full well, David isn't naive optimist as he looks at the world. He doesn't just go back and say, well, you put everything into subject to us, but uh, ignores the fact that we are under sin and death and so on. Psalm 8 in the Old Testament also functions as hope. How does it function as hope? Well, if you go back to Genesis 3.15. After sin enters the world, God made a promise. And what did God promise? God promised that the human race would not be destroyed. Now, it almost destroyed the Noah. <laughs> Came pretty close. But in Genesis 3.15, God said, right, from the seed of the woman, from the human race, will come a redeemer. From the seed of the woman, right, from us, and it speaks again of our significance, but from us will come one, and this is where you get eventually the Apostle Paul saying, will come another Adam. There's the first Adam, but there's going to have to come another Adam. Another Adam who will undo the work of this first man. Right? What did the first man do? He disobeyed. What must happen? Well, there must be obedience. There must be giving full love and service unto God. There must be the obeying of God's commands. There must be ultimately the putting away of sin and death. And Genesis 3 gives that hope that there's going to happen. And actually, as you trace this out of the Old Testament, this promise gets clarified and expanded upon. And you begin to see who the seed of the woman will be. Well, it'll come through Abraham's line. It'll come through Judah. It'll come through the nation of Israel. It'll come through the Davidic king. I mean, all of these ways that it's expanded upon. And David himself, not only as a kind of foreshadowing of Christ, but as a prophet, quotes Psalm 8, right? It gives you Psalm 8. And the author of Hebrews picks up Psalm 8, not only looking back to creation, but as a word of hope. The very fact that Psalm 8 can be written is still saying that in the future... There's still coming one who will restore us to what we were made first to be, who will defeat sin and death, who will come and identify with us, who will become a last Adam to ultimately restore us to what was lost. 
Now that's why Psalm 8 is being quoted, and that's precisely how the author of Hebrews takes it. So look as he gives this quotation. I put some of the backstory in here. But notice how he now comments on it. And what I've said is really what the author of Hebrews is now commenting. Right? He says, as we said in verse 5, angels don't bring the promised age, the age that's tied to Genesis 3.15 and the promise that coming from the human race will come a deliverer. Right? It's not angels who do that, but he then quotes Psalm 8. Then notice how he comments on this. In putting, this is 8b, or halfway through verse 8, right? He quotes the psalm, and then he says, In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Now, it's very important to get the hymn right. I think often we read this hymn as, In putting everything under him, we automatically are going to Jesus. But that's not quite right. Just wait. Verse 9 will bring Jesus in. The hymn is the hymn of Psalm 8. Right? He's just quoted Psalm 8, right? He's put everything under our feet, right? So first that's in Adam, right? He put everything under Adam's feet. But in putting everything under him, under Adam, under the human race, God left nothing that's not subject to him. That's our role in creation. We were to rule and to reign and so on. But... <laughs> There's yet here, yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. That's what the fall has brought. Right? That's what Genesis 3 has brought. And it's quite an understatement, isn't it? Right? You made us rulers over creation. David celebrates that. But the author of Hebrews is very aware, just as the Old Testament is very aware, that we failed in the task. Right? We were made to rule, but we don't. We don't put everything under our feet. In fact, right, live long enough, you'll die. And it's not that you'll put the world under your feet. <laughs> the world will put you six foot under. Right? We do not rule. Things are not subject to us. That's the point. And of course, that's in some sense the storyline of the Bible. In Adam, we have all died. In Adam, we failed to fulfill our task that God made us to be as image bearers. What hope is there for us? Well, the hope is, not from an angel, <laughs> the hope is that the Son of God, the Eternal Son, now takes on flesh, takes on our humanity, and in that humanity obeys for us, dies for us, becomes the last Adam in order to restore us to the very purpose of our creation. And that's where verse 9 goes, doesn't it? Verse 9, right? God has put things under our feet. It's not subject to us. Now we see the contrast in verse 9. But we see Jesus, right? There's the solution. That's why the Son of God had to become human. He had to become human in order to restore us, right? But we see Jesus who, and then it's now refers to his incarnation, who is made a little lower than the angels, Right? That's language that comes out of Psalm 8, right? He became incarnate, right? Who was crowned with glory and honor. Again, that comes out of Psalm 8 as well, right? We were crowned with glory and honor, but he now, in taking our humanity, has been crowned with glory and honor. He became truly human, right? And he then, in that humanity, restored us. How did he do that? He died, right? He suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone, right? There's the first reason why the incarnation. Why, 
Why did the Son of God have to become human? It's because the only way he could redeem us, right? He had to now take on our humanity. He had to become human. And in that humanity, he had to obey. He had to die. He had to restore us. He had to undo the work of the first man. He had to become that seed of the woman. And by his incarnation to cross and resurrection, we are restored, right? Think of our salvation. We are united to Christ. We are patterned in our glorification after his glorified humanity. We are restored to our rule and reign. Ultimately, in new heavens and new earth, we will rule and reign with him. Our task as our purpose of creation is not lost. It is ultimately restored in him. Great and glorious Savior. Now, can angels do that for you? No. Angels aren't image bearers. Angels aren't anything. I mean, angels, there's no salvation for angels, right? The only one who can do that is the Son of God who took on our image, who took on our humanity to redeem us. Now, he goes on to the second reason here in terms of why the Son became man. And this is, this verses 10 to 13 just follows straight from what has already been given in Psalm 8 and verses 5 through 9. I say these are quite interrelated. The Son of God became human. The incarnation took place to bring many sons to glory. That just follows through from Psalm 8, right? And bringing many sons to glory, verse 10, it was fitting that God, from whom and through whom everything exists, should make the, the author, the founder, the, um, the pioneer. I mean, this, this term author-founder is, is, carries a number of, of senses to it, right? It, it, it's, there's no English word that translates it well. So it's, this author is the idea of, of trailblazer, pioneer, one who opens the new world, right? Uh, champion is also the idea here. So we translated author, founder, and so on. He made him, Jesus, the author and founder of our salvation, perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. Notice the identification with humans. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. And there's a few quotations that are given. Psalm 22 and Isaiah 8. I'll declare your name in the brothers in the presence of the congregation. I'll put my trust in him, verse 13. Here I am, the children God has given me. We won't look at all these quotations, but this is following from the Psalm 8 quotation, right? The Son of God became human to make, bring many sons to glory. What's glory here? Often we think of glory probably as heaven, isn't it? And there is a sense in which we could say we're going to glory, right? But the glory here is the glory of Psalm 8, right? He's following through with what we've already said, Right? The Son of God became human to restore us to the very purpose of our glory, our creation. He is now bringing, by doing that, many sons to glory. It's, it's an adoption theme. But sonship also in Scripture is very closely tied to image. Right? To be the image of God. Right? Ultimately, he has the notion of likeness. right? Image, likeness, and so on. And as it gets tracked out in Scripture, right... Adoption, right? I mean, as it works out, the Son of God takes on our image. He takes on sonship and he restores us to sonship, right? By his work, he makes sons and daughters of us, right? He brings us into his family and that's why it emphasizes in verse 11. Uh, his family, you know, we are of the same family. He who makes men holy are of the same family. And there's an identification there, which we'll see 
in terms of the priestly work, right? He must become human to identify with us. He must become human to restore us. He must become human to bring about our sonship, our restoration. And he does so as this author, this trailblazer, right? Makes sense. Jesus is presented in the New Testament by taking on our humanity as really the first man of the new creation. Adam is the first man of the old creation. He has brought sin and death and destruction. To be an Adam is bad news. What we need is not Adam brought back, we need another Adam. We need a last Adam. We need a better Adam. And in the incarnation now, you have, tied to the very virgin conception, think of how the virgin conception is presented in Scripture. It's creation. It's a new creation. In the Son of God taking on our humanity, the new creation is dawned. He becomes the first man of that new creation. That's why in salvation we get transferred from Adam to Christ. He's the head of the new world. He's the head of the new order. He's the head of the new creation. That's why this term pioneer is used. He becomes the one who opens up the trail, right? Pioneers, you know, if they go westward, right? Uh, They blaze a trail. Well, he's the first man and he takes us in, in his wake. He's bringing many sons to glory by he, through his death and resurrection and so on, becomes the head of the new creation, the head of his people, right? He does this as the champion, right? All of that's brought in here. And he couldn't do that unless he became human. He couldn't become the head of the new creation without taking on our humanity. He couldn't win the victory apart from him obeying for us on our behalf as our coveted head and representative, as our substitute on the cross. That's how all of this is unpacked for us so that in him now we have a full and complete restoration, salvation, forgiveness. Everything is found in him. But then in verses 14 through 16, he speaks of by doing this work, he destroys our enemies, right? So here's a third reason why the Son of God becomes human. To restore and fulfill us to God's attention for us, to restore us back, to bring sons to glory, but to also destroy our enemies. And our enemies are described here as death, and the devil, right? So he says in verse 14, since the children have flesh and blood, notice the commonality. We are human. We have flesh and blood. He too shared in their humanity. There's a kind of necessity here. To defeat death, to defeat devil, he's got to share in our humanity. He's got to take that on, right? So that, and here's almost a kind of irony here, isn't it? (laughs) When we think of death, we think of that's it. Now, obviously, as Christians, we say we go to be with the Lord, but we think of death, you know, death rightly is a robber, it's an enemy. But his death brings victory. It says here he shared humanity so that by his death, he destroys death. And then it goes on, he destroys death, and then he destroys the power of the devil who all their lives holds over us. This fear of death. For surely it's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants, right? Why do we fear death? You know, Woody Allen years ago, this old, remember old Woody Allen? (laughs) 
dating myself, but not that I'm a fan of Woody Allen, but he had a few quips, you know, often. And uh, when he was asked whether he was afraid to die, he said, no, I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> well, right, Woody Allen is expressing a kind of universal fear that all of us have, right? We fear death. We fear death for a variety of reasons, right? Uh, some, we fear death because you think of pain and suffering and difficulties and you've seen people experience cancer and so on and then you say, I don't want to go through that, right? We fear death because it brings a separation from loved ones. And scripture uh, does say death is an enemy. It's a robber. It robs us of our loved ones, right? We fear death, I mean, as a, as a young child. I mean, I wrestle with these things where... Well, what's, what's, what's it to not be or to be dead? And, you, you know, I turned into, you know, hot flashes. And fortunately, I had a mother and father who loved the gospel and would point me to the gospel and Jesus and hope and so on. But you, we fear death and children and we struggle with these things, right? But the greatest reason we fear death right, is because death is the result of sin, right? In Scripture, there's a tight organic, right? We have an organic relationship. They're inseparable, right? There's an inseparable relationship between sin, and sin always in Scripture is first before God, right? That's what Genesis 3 is. We sin before God. God now in our sin brings judgment. And the consequences, the penalty of sin Think of what Paul says in Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin, right? Picks right up from Genesis 2. If you eat of that fruit, you'll die. The wages of sin is death. To sin leads to death. Death physically and spiritually is the result of sin. And that brings about power over us, right? Satan now comes, right? Satan is just a creature. Satan is not all-powerful. But Satan is the one who now is the accuser, right? He takes this sentence of death that we have hanging over our heads and he just drives it. He, we cower in light of it, right? He's presented here like a tyrant who holds over us the fact that we are condemned, that we are going to die, that we're going to stand before God. What can free us from this? I mean, the picture here is, is awful, right? We're in bondage. Oh, we don't like to think of ourselves in bondage, do we? <laughs> but in sin, we are in bondage. We're in bondage to sin. We're in bondage to its power. We're in bondage to Satan. Worst of all, we're under the judgment of God, right? What can free us? Who can free us? Well, no angel does that. The only one who frees us is the one who takes on our humanity. That's why it says in verse 14, Since the children have flesh and blood... The Son of God now takes on our humanity, and by taking on our humanity and through death, and of course that's bringing his whole cross. What does his cross do? He pays for our sin. He reconciles us to God. We are justified before him. Thus, death can no longer hold him, right? He deals with sin in his cross, and thus resurrection results, right? It is finished. A resurrection takes place because death no longer has a hold over him. He is... Resurrection and life, very in the very self, right? And by his cross brings about resurrection so that those who are united to him, the fear of death is 
destroyed. And the fear of death is destroyed because sin is destroyed. We're right with God. And the devil no longer has power over us. We can say, buzz off, right? You can hang this over my head, but I'm right with God because of the Redeemer. I'm in him and I'm secure in him. And that's what is being emphasized here. And apart from the incarnation and apart from the Son of God taking on our humanity and going to the cross and being raised from the dead, there would be no defeat of the devil. There would be no destruction of death. There would be no payment for sin, right? And that's what the author is emphasizing to these individuals here, is that they aren't to wander from Christ. The only hope is found in him. Think of them as they're facing persecutions and trials. They may, and we know from this book, some of them have lost their livelihoods. Some of them have lost their homes. Some of them are facing a certain death. But the author is encouraging them that the Son of God who has come, who is King of kings and Lord of lords, who will come again, is the one who has paid for sin, defeated death, destroyed the power of the devil, no matter what Rome does in this context here, or no matter what anybody does. We are not to fear man who can kill the body, but we are to fear God, and in Christ the fear is removed because we are justified before him. I mean, that's the emphasis that is here, and that's why the Son of God takes on our humanity to destroy our enemies, right? And then lastly, he picks up in verse 17 and 18. In some sense, the whole chapter is moving here, some sense, right? He says, the Son of God becomes human in order to become a merciful, faithful high priest, right? If you know anything about the book of Hebrews, right? The priestly theme is everywhere, right? Boy, if you took the book of Hebrews out of the Bible, we would lose so much regarding Jesus as the great high priest and how he fulfills the sacrifices and how he fulfills the Old Testament system and how he brings the temple to its conclusion and so on and so on, the rising of the new covenant. I mean, most of this book, basically chapter 5 and following, is all about the priestly work of Christ. So obviously the author is now transitioning here, right, to unpack this larger theme as he will develop it later in his book, right? But the high priestly theme is very, very important, and it's tied to the rationale for the incarnation. Right? Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1. If you flip over there, you have one verse that describes what a high priest is in the Bible. Right? You don't often find one-verse summaries of huge sections of Scripture, but here you do. Right? Every high priest... What's a high priest? Well, a high priest is selected from among men, from among the people. And of course, in the nation of Israel, that was from the nation of Israel, and particularly from the Levites. He is appointed to represent them in matters related to God. He's a mediator, right? He's a go-between, between the people and God. And he offers gifts and sacrifices for sins, right? problem that we have before God is that we're sinners, right? And the priest is this mediator, this go-between. But in order for the priest to do that work, he must come from the people, right? There must be an identification. He must be one of them. That's clearly taught in the Old Testament, and that's what's being picked up here. Well, how can the Son of God act as our priest, right? How can he pay for our sin? 
How can he meet God's righteous demand? He must take on our humanity. He must identify with us. You see, that's taught in verse 17. Notice the the strong language of almost necessity. Verse 17, for this reason. That's really laying it down here. Why must God decide? Well, there's the reason. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way. What's that? He had to be identified with us. He had to take on our humanity. Not only to restore us back to the purpose of our creation and bring us to glory, to defeat our enemies, but to be our mediator, to be our great high priest, he had to take on our humanity. He had to become one with us. He had to identify with us. And that is the only way that he can, as he goes on to say here, in order that he may become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now that word propitiation is really important, right? Propitiation is the idea of the Son of God offering himself for us, which satisfies and meets God's righteous demand and turns back his wrath. The assumption here is, in our sin, we have a bigger problem than the devil. Now, the devil's a problem. He hangs death over our heads. We cower. But the greatest problem that you and I have as sinners is that we stand under the judgment of a holy God. God is holy and just and righteous, right? How can God forgive us and remain true to his justice and holiness? That's a huge problem, right? We've sinned before God. How can God forgive us of our sins? Well, here's the answer here, and it gets unpacked through the entire book. The only way that God can actually forgive us of our sins and remain true to himself, to turn back his holy wrath and to satisfy his justice and his righteousness is that God the Son, who is God, (laughs) must stand on our behalf, but how can he do so unless he takes on our humanity to, in that humanity, represent us and identify with us? What we need, ultimately, is a divine human redeemer. We need the Son who can meet his own demand that's against us, and we need him to take on our humanity to stand on our behalf to identify, to represent. I mean, that's at the heart of the priestly work, and he's the only one that can do it, right? I mean, we face in our day, right? People will say, why do you Christians say that Jesus only is the Savior? You're so narrow-minded and so bigoted and so on, right? Well, I mean, if you try to explain this apart from putting all of this in terms of what the Bible teaches, then it makes no sense at all. But if you go back and you work through all that Scripture says and you say, who are you, God, right? You're the creator and Lord and holy and just. And then you look at what we are made to be and you look at what sin is and you realize that God doesn't deny himself and that he can't overlook our sin and you wouldn't want him overlooking our sin. He wouldn't be just and good and right, right? So that in order to forgive us, God must save us. God alone must forgive us, right? Forgiveness of sins is an act of God. God must meet his own demand, but he must do so in a representative, in a priest, in a substitute, right? There's only one person that can do that, right? No angel, 
No Moses of old, no uh, you know, David or Elijah or so on. It's only God the Son who becomes human. The one who's fully God, fully man, and that's what's being emphasized here. Right? No angel can bring the world to come. No angel can fulfill all of God's promises and bring the forgiveness of sins and bring our restoration. There's only one individual who could do so, and that's God the Son who has become human. Right? And notice about this is that he, in doing this, becomes merciful. <laughs> he shows pity on us. Right? We're a pitiful people outside of him. Right? It's not until you see how pitiful you are that you appreciate the Redeemer, right? We have no hope. We're, I mean, just look at the description here. We're under God's wrath. We're under the power of the devil. We're under death. We are enslaved. I mean, there's no hope for us. But the Son of God has shown pity, right? The Father has sent the Son. This is the act of grace. And he sent the Son, and the Son has become faithful. Faithful here is, is he's, 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 take, he's become human, and he's now entered into his office of of, of mediator for us. And he's done that faithfully, obediently. Think of the Gospels. I've come to do your will, O Father. I've come to obey. He's obeyed where no one else before has obeyed, right? And he's obeyed for us. And he's made propitiation. And in that, amazing of amazing, he also becomes our helper. <laughs> Verse 18, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted, right? You know, we often try to help people, we try to sympathize with people, we try to empathize with people, right? And, and often, you know, that's good and we need to do that. But, you know, you and I can't really help, you know, in these kind of eternal realities. All we can do is say we need a helper, right? Well, this helper is not only able to do something because of who he is, he's able to accomplish the work. He's able to defeat sin and death and the devil and to restore us and to bring us right before God. But he's also able, because he's taken on our humanity, he suffered for us, he knows what it's like to live a human life, he knows what it's like to feel the hatred of friends and so on, and suffering all of that, he can be our helper and our advocate, and we can go to him, and he knows exactly what we're going through. We have a sympathetic redeemer, right? Well, I tell you, this is why... Jesus is all-glorious and all-sufficient, right? This is why we find all of our hope and confidence in Him. This is why the Christian is the one who can say that by the work of Christ and this Redeemer, you know, I have been made new and I have been justified and I have a reason to live and a hope to live. And this is why we take the gospel to people to tell them of this good news. Because as this author warns these people here, if you depart from this Jesus, here's all the encouragement, but if you depart from him, what's outside of him? Sin, death, judgment, the devil's power, right? There's nothing outside of him that we can save ourselves from. Maybe only he can save us, right? And that's the message that this church needed to hear as they faced potential internal compromises. They faced pressures, right? How do, you be, how do we face pressures and how do we remain faithful? We, we look to Jesus. We look to the one who has done this work and we say, he can save me. He is able. He can sympathize. He can see me through no matter what I'm going through. There's nothing that I have outside of him. Inside, by faith in him, I have everything. And that's why the Apostle Paul can eventually say, nothing can separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus, right? Well, I wonder if that's your 
hope this morning. I wonder if that's the Redeemer that you say is my Jesus, my Lord, my Savior, right? Unfortunately, we live in a day where there's a lot of Jesuses running around. <laughs> Be careful of them, right? What we need to know is the Jesus of the Bible, right? The Jesus revealed in Hebrews 2 and in through the whole Bible. And this Jesus demands our worship. He has the right to it. He has all authority and power. And he deserves it. Right? And we pray that we will render to him today that worship and honor and obedience and service that he rightly deserves. And if we don't know him, we say, my goodness, that's Jesus. I mean, no wonder I need to have salvation in him, that we would flee to him. And you think of how he's presented here as a merciful high priest. He's come to save sinners, right? And we're sinners, and he welcomes sinners to come, right? He welcomes sinners to call out to him, and he doesn't turn us away, right? We call out to him and say, Lord, save me. He is a willing, merciful, faithful high priest that will save us completely. Oh, may we find our rest in him. Let's, let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son. Ah, oh, it's no wonder. As we see him presented in the book of Hebrews and even in this section of chapter 2 of why he is better, why he is supreme, why he is greater, that he is incomparable, that no one before all the great figures of the Old Testament, and even angels themselves, they compare nothing to him. For he is your son from eternity. He is the one that is your beloved son whom you've loved, and the son has loved you, and in the spirit from all eternity shared a perfect union, a perfect communion and fellowship. But he's the son given our sin, given our plight has taken on our humanity to redeem us. And apart from that, we have no Savior. We have no Redeemer. We have no hope. But because of what he has done and who he is, we have one who gives us forgiveness of sins, the defeat of death, the destruction of the devil. Oh, we have a glorious Savior. Oh, may we renew our confidence in him today. May, if we do not know him, flee to him. Find our rest in him, for indeed he demands our worship, he deserves our worship, and may we give him that this day and all the days of our life. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask all of these things. Amen.